Okay, good uh, to be back and um, going to give the second talk, uh, Falling into Grace Part 2, kind of based on uh, a book that I wrote, Falling into Grace. And, and I realized after giving a first talk and uh, really on how um, God does not expect anything of you, I don't expect anything of you, I do want to say that just because, you know, the book is for sale, please, by no means, you're invited to buy one, but you're not expected um, to, to buy a book. Um, I mean, there's no reason in particular why my daughter needs to go to college. So don't, don't feel like you need to, to do that. Um, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm joking. I, I need to begin this. It, it is called Falling into Grace Part 2, but uh, I, I kind of made a, a, a title as I wrote this. And I need to laugh at myself a bit because whenever I was talking with Dave about um, how to structure these talks, he told me, you know, there's no need to bite off more than you can chew. Um, don't, you don't need to cover the whole book. And I'm getting a tad nervous as I look at my working title um, because it is, and I quote, taken, broken, blessed, and given, colon, the manner in which healing, purpose, suffering, and relinquishment inform the Christian's experience of spiritual descent and the open-handed life of grace. So that's, that's what I got tonight, so buckle up. <laughs> uh, so you know that trick whenever someone's got three cups and they're kind of moving one ball around and it's hard to follow the ball? I'm hoping that's not what this talk is, but uh, it may be. So to recap for a moment, uh, what I wanted to do in the first talk earlier today was to give us a map of the spiritual life where grace is experienced. Um, not as we increase our capacity to grow or to ascend, but that grace is always experienced in descent, uh, or that grace is experienced most poignantly not as we take control of our life, uh, but that the fruit of grace is always to relinquish control. And so what I want to do for this next section is talk about healing and about our purpose in life and about the role of suffering in our descent into what I'm going to call the formed life. The formed life, but I will say the ground on which I stand in giving this talk, it's a little tricky because what I'm really clear I don't want to do is prescribe new behavior, right? I'm not trying to take away one five point plan in order to sneak a new five point plan in through the back door. And so I'm asking you to hear my words um, not as being prescriptive, but as descriptive of what a free fall into grace might look like, or if nothing else, uh, how I'd narrate my own fall into grace at the very least. Um, But again, in speaking about formation, there's a tension I just want to name, but that I can't really resolve. And that tension sounds something like this. I don't believe that we fully have free will. But I do believe that we make many choices. I do not believe that we are in control of our life. I do believe that we are stewards of our life. I do not believe that willfulness or the exertion of our will, I don't think that willfulness heals lives or solves problems. In fact, oftentimes it creates problems, but I do believe um, that cultivating a spirit of willingness or receptivity to receive can to some extent change how we experience the grind and sometimes makes us more useful in the lives of other people. And so what I want to do is share the best quote I've ever encountered that speaks to this tension, which I include in the book, and it comes from the late Robert Capon. He writes, I want you to hold out your right hand, palm up. 
And I want you to imagine that someone is placing one after another all sorts of good gifts in it. Make the good things anything you like. M&M's, weekends in Acapulco. Can't pronounce that. Acapulco. Winning the lottery, falling in love, having perfect children, being wise, talented, good-looking, and humble besides anything. But now consider, there are two ways your hand can respond to those goods. It can respond to them as a live hand and try to clutch, to hold on to the single good that is in it at any given moment, thus closing itself off to all the other possible goods. Or... It can respond as a dead hand, in which case it will simply lie there, perpetually open to all the goods and the coming and goings of the dance, end quote. So whenever we talk about dissent or relinquishing control, I'm not saying that the point is to turn our nose up at the dance of being alive. In fact, quite the opposite is true. But the fruit of relinquishment is that we stop clutching to our dance partners, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our idea of God, what we expect from life and other people, because here's the mystery of the Christian faith. Only a dead hand, only a hand that remains perpetually open and that doesn't clutch or grasp or close itself off, only that hand can receive and live and therefore spill over into the lives of other people. And you know, that sounds really, really nice, that metaphor, but um, here's the problem. The moment we talk about a hand that is truly open, we're reminded really quickly that sometimes what life throws in our hands, it's not M&Ms, right? It's not a weekend in Mexico, but sometimes what falls in that hand is suffering, Struggle, heartbreak, our limitations, the limitations of others, sin, a big fat dose of human brokenness. And so what I want to do is talk about the formed life, which I'll get to later, which, again, is not an ascent to holiness, but a descent into healing. And only from that place of healing, only from there. Do we begin to um, think about grace and God differently to discover our purpose and to engage our suffering in a way that brings life to the world? And so I want to talk about healing. And to do that, I want to give you an image from Scripture that comes from the final night of Jesus' life, the Last Supper. Or if you're from a liturgical tradition or worship here at All Souls, um, the Eucharist, the Mass, right? Because on the final night of Jesus' life, he gathered around a table with his friends and he did four things. He took a loaf of bread, he blessed it, he broke the bread, and then he gave it to his disciples as food. Again, Jesus did four things with that bread. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it out. And so, like the Eucharistic bread is taken and blessed, broken and given out, I believe um, that the grace of God often does those four things in a human life, that we are taken, blessed, broken, and given to the world. And so first, I believe that God wants to heal us, to continually take us into God's arms and to remind us that we are already blessed, to take us into his arms and to remind us that we are unconditionally blessed And then second, I think God wants to give us a purpose, to break us. And if that sounds painful, it is. 
And as God breaks us of all the ways that we want to protect ourselves and heal ourselves and bless ourselves and control our life and win the game, as God breaks us of all of that, I believe God wants to give us to the world as food. Um, that is in such a way that our wounds come to heal others and our brokenness is a source of grace for us, yes, but also for the sake of the world. And so let's talk a bit about healing. I think it's pretty safe to say that Jesus Christ was very concerned with healing. Right? In story after story, Jesus heals. Jesus healed the blind, the lame, the lepers, and the sick. Jesus healed broken hearts, broken relationships, broken bodies. In fact, I love Eugene Peterson's, um, it's not a translation, I guess an interpretation of Matthew 9 in the message where he says, and I quote, Jesus taught in their meeting places and reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. When he looked at over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless were they like sheep with no shepherd. So I want to talk about healing in the light of grace because Jesus spent a lot of time doing it. Uh, because here's what I believe. I believe that we may or may not be present to it, but that each one of us has been wounded. In fact, if, if life is a grind, no one emerges from that experience unscathed. And so the impact of being alive, and I mean this for all of us, even if we live lives of privilege and have been fortunate enough um, to come here today without significant trauma in our history, the impact of being alive is to leave us with wounds. And those wounds shape who we become. They shape how we think. They shape what we believe about God. They shape what we expect from life. In her book, um, Daring Greatly, Brene Brown puts it like this. She writes, As children, we found ways to protect ourselves from being hurt, diminished, and disappointed. We put on armor. We used our thoughts, behaviors, and emotions as weapons. We learned how to make ourselves scarce, even to disappear. Now as adults, we realize that to live with purpose, to be that person whom we long to be, we must again be vulnerable. We must take off the armor, put down the weapons, show up, and let ourselves be seen. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, these are spiritual words, and I'll tell you why. It's because our story as Christians, um, at least the fall, it begins in Genesis 3 with Adam rebelling against God and sinning. And then he hears footsteps. He feels fear. He knows he's naked. He feels ashamed. And then he covers himself with loincloths of his own making or what Brene Brown calls armor. And what I've come to believe is that this is something that we all do. We don't think about it. We just do it. We interface with some law or some expectation that we always fail to meet. Alex did a great job of talking about that earlier. And whenever we fail to meet that law, we feel great fear. And we cover ourselves up and we do whatever we have to do to divert attention away from our spiritual nakedness. And this is a really wounding experience. Now, I want you just to think about it for a moment. I mean, I think it's really amazing how bad we are in our culture with mending emotional and spiritual wounds, right? Whenever we were a kid, 
Um, someone would apply ointment and a bandage whenever we skinned our knee because we understand the idea of treating a physical wound, but emotional and spiritual wounds are different. And our spirits get cut very early on in life by nasty words, by neglect, by rejection, by smothering, by abuse, by what we're calling the grind. And what we learn to do very instinctually is just soldier on. Right? We learn to medicate those wounds ourselves. And we do this by adopting a fear-based persona we think is going to shield us from getting hurt again. And again, when I say we get wounded, I'm not talking about full-scale trauma. I'm just, I'm just trying to point out that life has a way of beating us up and making us feel like we're not enough. I mean, why are we at a conference called Grace in the Grind? In part, because the image of the grind speaks to how we experience life. And so whenever I talk about life wounding us, I'm not asking you to consider like the big, massive, gaping wounds you've experienced. Although those are very important too. I'm just talking about the small punctures that needle you day after day, the death of our spirit by a thousand cuts. And so I want you to use your imagination for a bit, and I want you to picture yourself as a very vulnerable child. Or if nothing else, picture yourself as a teenager in a big and frightening world. And you get picked last at recess. You get glasses and people laugh. Your older brother or sister has always outshined you and people can't stop talking about it. You get dumped. Or you get physically or sexually abused. Or your parents leave. Or you don't make the team. Or you fail a class. Or you don't get, you know, the job that you wanted. Or you get fired from your first job. People don't sit with you in the lunchroom. I mean, what are those wounds and the million more that we have experienced and will experience other than subtle ways that we hear the world telling us that we're not blessed? And that if we want others to bless us, we better try and improve and try harder and get our ducks in a row, or if nothing else, to find some way to take control of our life and behave differently in order to make ourselves blessable. To make ourselves blessable. Because as a pastor, I've got the privilege of listening to other people's painful stories. But there's something I've noticed. When someone tells me their story, people never tell me the story of what actually happened to them, the facts. They always tell me the story of what it means to them. People rarely tell me the story. They give me the interpretation. They tell me what it all means. And so, for example, this was a common scenario in campus ministry. You know, someone comes into my office dejected and would say, um, they wouldn't say, I called a girl and asked her out and she said no. The story I heard was, I called a girl, asked her out, and she rejected me. And those are two very different stories. We invested the second story with a meaning, I am not enough, she rejected me. And as we believe the lie of our own interpretations, we then make choices uh, on how to deal with what we perceive to be our not enoughness. And so in this particular case, maybe we choose to be cool. not interested in dating. Maybe we choose to achieve. I mean, who's got time to date? i got to hit the books. Or maybe we just become a jerk or real cynical. We say, oh, women are jerks. I just, you know, 
Or maybe we numb. We numb the pain. Ice cream, booze, we binge on Netflix, whatever that is. Or sometimes we say, um, you know, we tell ourselves, she said no because. She said no because I don't drink, because I'm too skinny, because of the way I dress. And so we start drinking or working out or wearing trendy, um, trendier clothes. And so a false self begins to form, and it all stems from a lie that we believed. Again, the facts where she said no. Maybe she's shy. You know, maybe she's not allowed to date. Maybe she's scared. Maybe she's busy. But our interpretation of the event, the story we told ourselves, was always some version of I am not enough. Now, if this happened once in life, that's not a big deal. But if we do this enough over time, which I think we all have, we start making choices about who we think we need to be and what we think we need to achieve and what we think we need to possess uh, in order to feel like we are enough. And so a bit about what this looked like in my life. Um, I come from a broken home. My parents divorced whenever I was in the fifth grade, which was an incredibly painful experience, but also a really formative experience. And so I remember being in like the sixth or seventh grade, and I was sitting on a psychiatrist's couch, just, you know, this incredibly depressed teen or tween or, or whatever I was. Uh, and I'll never forget as tears streamed down my cheeks asking, where is God in all this? And here's the catch. It wasn't a rhetorical question. The memory, including my emotional state at the time, is crystal clear. I believed in God. And even at that age, my mind agreed that God probably had some kind of plan. But in terms of what I felt, it was as if my soul had been stomped on and I was on the ground wallowing in deep emotional pain. I felt abandoned by my parents, yes, but I really felt abandoned by God. Okay, and so as I entered high school, I believed in God. Wasn't a problem. I just didn't think God was very competent. <laughs> I mean, you lie, but right? Isn't this kind of how it works at the gut level? I mean, otherwise... I wouldn't have been outsourced to a stranger's office who collected a paycheck week after week as I kind of told my story. And whenever I experienced something of God's love in a really powerful, transformative way in high school, which thank God I did, I can't help but think that what motivated my zeal to worship, my passion to read scripture, my desire to be a good Christian as I understood it was a belief, if only a subconscious belief, that if my actions were pleasing to God, then I could control this relationship. And maybe I could keep God from leaving me too. And here's the thing. I'm 35 years old now. And I wake up every day and, you know, I wear a suit to work, and I play the part of an adult, and I pretend that I'm in control. I mean, but here's the thing. I'm still that kid, right, who wants to wake up on Christmas morning and see mom and dad trying to figure out in every conversation, every relationship, every moment as I kind of meet people, what do I need to do? Who do I need to be? How do I need to act in this particular situation to make sure that you don't leave? And so the persona I sometimes project, I like to call it the three C's, confident, calm, controlled. That's, that's the persona. Now, I'm not saying that's a total charade. 
But on some days, it's pretty close. And on no day of life is it the full truth of who I am. Because emotionally speaking, it's the same me. Sitting on that therapist's sofa, feeling abandoned, chewed up and spit out by the grind, feeling like God had no clue how to run things. And whereas some would say, hey man, that's in the past. What I'd have us consider as we think about grace is that the past, until grace flows into our life and heals some of those wounds, that the past is always alive in the present And that at times, it makes the grind a lot more painful than it already is. And so I just wonder what your story is. You know, I wonder what wounds you've experienced, whether they're big or small. I wonder what choices you've made in life to mend those wounds. And finally, I wonder how those choices exasperate the grind, the expectation, the emotional labor Uh, The particular place you choose to keep spinning and the emotional labor it takes to keep them up. Because here's the thing, you know, whether we acknowledge it or not, those wounds are there. And rather than ascending above them, I believe the grace of God is going to lower us deeper into them and transform them for the sake of the world. Because, you know, if you weren't here for the first talk, I told uh, the story about Pablo, a gang member. and, And the words he spoke that resonated with my soul were... I wore three t-shirts because I never wanted to show people my wounds. I was ashamed of my wounds, and so I tried to hide them. But now I see that to live into my purpose, I need to welcome my wounds. How else will I ever be able to heal other people? And so I want to close just with a few words about healing and purpose and suffering, and then end with one more story. Um, I believe that healing can only happen in community. Or that most often it happens in community. Uh, And as we all know, community is really, really hard. And the, uh, how do I say this? The reason community is hard is because of other people. (laughs) I don't know how else to put that. Um, Henry Nouwen was once asked, you know, what is Christian community to you? And he said, Christian community is that place where the person I least want to see, they're always there. That's how he, he talked about Christian community. I was, I was kind of laughing earlier when Alex, he was talking about how relationships make us aware of our need for grace. And I was like, amen. Um, that is so true. They're a source of grace, but they also make us aware of our need for grace. Um, Have you ever heard that saying, love means never having to say you're sorry? took like eight seconds of marriage to realize that is not true. Um, And so we need people, and yet it's kind of hard. And it's hard, you know, I mean, if we're going to put this in theological language, it's hard because we're, we're sinners. And by the way, whenever we say that, it's not a moralistic judgment, it's a theological judgment. It's just a way of saying, and we can use different language, but... It's just a way of saying that we never enter our relationships with a very clean, emotional, or spiritual slate. That our wounds are either on display, or they're trying to leak out of us in various ways as we hide them. Um, But at least for me, I experience healing and grace in relationships where I don't have to hide. In relationships where I don't have to hide my sin and my brokenness, but I can be authentically who I am. In other words, I think healing happens whenever we can tell the truth. And give up our quest to hide our sins and be courageously vulnerable about who we really are 
the anger, the fear, the mistakes, the powerlessness we may have over our addictions because the essence of the human condition east of Eden is to hide. That is the first thing Adam and Eve did after they ate the fruit. They hid. And I think healing of that trauma, of that exile begins whenever we as a community don't have to hide anymore. When we can find relationships where grace is assumed, where nothing said or heard has the power to scandalize us or shock us because there is nothing inside of you that's not also inside of me. Things like acceptance and worth and value, they're they're just not up for grabs in this type of community I'm talking about because the Christian gospel assumes that we are so much more uh, broken than whatever armor we wear and that we're so much more loved than we have the capacity to fathom. And so grace or unconditional acceptance is always the foundation of this community that can heal us because what holds us together again, that's not our righteousness but the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that's what enables us to tell the truth. And I don't know why it works this way, uh, but in my experience, it just does. That if we can acknowledge, verbally acknowledge to another human being our wounds, our fears, our pain, if we can tell the truth about that in a community where there's not fixing or moralizing or judging, but just empathy and presence, In my experience, God shows up in that place where two or three gather and transforms our wounds. Because the impact of such a graceful community is that transparency flows, right? Since faith and God's unconditional love are the source of our blessing, our need to hide and cover up diminishes because we don't have to steal a blessing anymore. The result being that honesty increases. Your willingness to be vulnerable, it makes me want to be vulnerable too. And that's why authentic community is not something we can force on someone. Uh, We can't will it. We can't dictate it by law. It's like Jesus asked the man in John's gospel who had been ill for 38 years. He said, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? And transparency, this risky self-disclosure I'm talking about, it only makes sense when everything in us answers Jesus' question with a wholehearted yes. We know the light is painful, but we still want to go there because that's where our healing lies. The truth sets us free. And as we're in this community, this community where we know that we're blessed at a deep emotional level, which again, we need need other people for. Uh, We can't just read about it. You know, we need someone to mirror back to us our belovedness. We are incarnational people. As this happens, we live into our purpose. You know, as a knowledge of our belovedness breaks in, a sharing of that belovedness leaks out. Because just like Jesus takes and blesses the Eucharistic bread, so he um, breaks us and gives us to the world as a source of nourishment. And this for me is a really great mystery. But I, I do want to say something about it, about having a purpose. And I want to say you do have a purpose. I don't believe your purpose is to change the world. I do believe that changing the world is God's purpose, and I believe wholeheartedly that God is going to do that. But I do believe that in living and choosing every single day, 
we do change the course of our world, um, our families, our churches, and every interaction for good or for ill. Because what I've learned is that something is going to flow out of us. It's just going to. And so I guess the wisdom I'd offer is that grace and healing are most likely to flow out when grace and healing are also flowing in. And what that means is that we cannot live into our purpose as we become strong, but as we embrace brokenness and suffering and God's grace in the midst of that experience. So I'm going to do something really um, now that I don't want to do, but um, it's for the good of the whole. I'm going to draw. I can't draw. I also don't even know how to hold a pen. I don't know why I'm doing this in front of everyone, but this, this is supposed to be um, an iceberg that I'm going to draw here. I don't know what it's actually going to look like. Maybe an ice cream cone. Let's see. Can't use a marker. Okay. So you probably can't read that. It says the managed life. Uh, it says that the managed life, um, and I'm borrowing this image. I, I got it from Larry Crabb, and I, I'm talking about a top of the iceberg kind of life, the managed life. This is a place where um, not only do we think that it's good to be in control, but we've convinced ourselves that we are in control. For the most part, um, life goes the way that we think that we should. You know, we're winning the game of life uh, more than we're losing it. Um, we do our part. We're rewarded accordingly. Um, this is a psychological makeup of the managed life. It's a very controlled existence, and we feel very much like we got the plate spinning, and we feel good about that. Uh, and so think of the Pharisee in Luke 18. You know, God, I fast twice a week. I tithe. I worship. I keep my end of the bargain. Uh, I'm not like that guy who is not managing his life well. Life is under control. This is the managed life. So down here... can't read that just says wounded so eventually what happens um i think most people's experience of life at some point life happens right it just knocks us off our horse uh, and it, it drives us down below the surface to this place right here that i'm going to call the wounded life uh, and when that happens when life happens two foundational illusions that really sustain the control existence are taken away from us and those illusions are this um, one is the illusion that life is fair. That illusion is taken from us. And the second illusion is I'm in control. And so whenever life happens um, and we realize that um, maybe life isn't fair and maybe we're not in control, when that happens, we're in deep pain. Uh, this is a really unpleasant experience. And it's very natural, by the way, to blame someone for it or to numb this pain or to succumb to fear and shame and um, to just live a wounded existence. And, you know, sometimes we settle for that existence. I think a lot of people um, live a wounded existence. And it's very natural whenever we're here uh, to want a ladder, to climb back up. You know, to, to, to be there and um, to think um, that the point of spirituality is to bring us back to the managed life. We assume that our fall is a problem. So I guess here's the point of my talk. Whenever life happens and we fall into this wounded life and we assume that God wants to help us climb back up again to get back to the managed life, I think the provocative thought I offer uh, is that maybe God does not want to help us climb, but that we haven't 
uh, we, we have not fallen far enough. Um, that there is actually further to go, um, deeper into a knowledge of the gospel, deeper into a knowledge of ourselves, and deeper into a knowledge of the human condition. And I'm going to call that the formed life. And it's kind of deep in our depths. Um, we're suffering. It's still awful. We're still not in control. Life's still not fair. But somehow, suffering, pain, or limitations, um, these become a vehicle for grace. They teach us empathy and wisdom. They make our wounds not a source of shame, but avenues through which other people are healed. Uh, and how we move from the wounded life to the formed life, I can't prescribe that. Getting from here to here, that's natural. Life just does that to you. But how we get from here even deeper um, to this place where our suffering and our wounds are transformed, I can't give you seven easy steps. I can't give you five spiritual laws. I can't tell you that I always live there because on many days I don't. But I can tell you nine times out of ten, whenever I find myself in this really generative place, where I'm honest about who I am and my pain and my suffering, and it's, um, I think, giving life to the world. Nine times out of ten, a graceful community has helped me get there. And so something I want to be clear about as I wrap these talks up, I do believe suffering is a problem, and I don't want to make light of sin. I don't want to make light of our real brokenness, but I do want to say that the goodness of God is to take the problem, turn it on its head, and to use the problem as a key ingredient in God's solution. Because so, offer, um, so often suffering, you know, it makes us close our hand off. It makes us clutch. And I just wonder what it would look like for us to have our hands open a bit more. And so one last story, uh, and then this talk will come to an end. Uh, and this is a story about greyhounds. Um, you know, those dogs that race around the track following the mechanical rabbit. And the following is a conversation between a reporter and a very successful greyhound racer. Um, it, the dog can talk in the story. And the reporter goes to interview the dog um, who quits racing at the height of his career. And the reporter wants to interview the greyhound because he wants to know why. Why would he quit at the very pinnacle of his career? And so the reporter says to the dog, you know, why'd you quit? Is it because you got too old? The dog said, no, no, I still had some race left in me. So you must not have won enough races. He said, no, I won over a million dollars for my owner. So they treated you badly. Is that why you quit? No, God, no, he said. They treated us like kings as long as we were winning. Then what, said the reporter, very frustrated. You know, why on earth would you stop racing at the very height of your career? You were killing it. And this is what the greyhound said. He said, I quit the day, the moment that I found out that what I was chasing was not a real rabbit. <laughs> That's when I quit. All that running, 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 running. And that thing I was chasing, it wasn't even real. Chasing something that's not real, thinking that if we catch it, we will finally be enough. That's the grind. We double our pace to catch that rabbit, and the rabbit triples the pace. And what fuels that chase but real and imagined expectation, a lie that says that we 
are not enough, but that if we finally get that thing that we want and grasp it, then maybe, just maybe, we'll be justified. Maybe, just maybe, we'll be blessable. So maybe you came to this conference because in your mind, um, you're chasing after God. And I guess my main word for you, if there's a take-home, I just want to say that maybe you got it wrong. Maybe God is chasing you. And maybe God expects nothing other than that as life robs us of the illusion that uh, we're in control and as our childish expectations of God and each other kind of fade away, um, maybe the good shepherd who is seeking you has already found you. Uh, And maybe God is at work slowly but surely binding up your wounds and making them beautiful. That's the thought I offer. And... um, We'll end there. Thank you so much for listening.